0: If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today.
1: Welcome to Circa. In this music episode for New York City, we're going to mention a lot of bands, people, and venues that let punk put New York City music over the edge. But don't worry. There are maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. So whether you're fully inside the scene or would just like to start scratching the surface of what punk means to the Big Apple, you're in the right place this is what we do. Count it off and dive in. Hey, ho, let's go. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. One, two, three, four! That's the famous start to every Ramon song, ever, and the perfect way to begin this episode. It's weird, though, because when it comes to the history of music in New York City, I usually think of smoky jazz clubs in Harlem in the 20s, folk musicians in Greenwich Village in the 60s, hip-hop coming out of the house parties of the Bronx in the 70s, But then I think of what happened at CBGB's in the Lower East Side in the 70s and 80s. And it's as New York as the subway, as a hot dog with mustard. It's undeniable. Argue all you like over its birthplace. Punk was defined right here in New York City. Yeah, Iggy Pop of the Stooges out of Detroit might be the grandfather, but punk as a scene? That was all New York. And yeah, it's true, New York isn't as punk rock as it used to be. Detroit still got us on the raw DIY vibe. But there are things we all take for granted in this city that have their legacy in punk. Things you might not even have expected. So this isn't just an episode about where to see punk music today. This is more about a part of New York's history that has shaped the city more than you might know, leaving trails and remnants everywhere. That warehouse in Bushwick? That trans, queer-core rapper? They wouldn't be the same without punk. And maybe it's anti-punk to celebrate its legacy, but isn't that kind of perfect to thumb your nose at its indifference with a little reverence? So we're gonna look at what made punk thrive and what made it die, but not be dead. We're going back before Mohawks, before mosh pits. This is when poets took up electric guitars and started a phenomenon. This was New York in the 70s, and it wasn't pretty. It was punk. So what? What do you think of when you think of punk? Rageful teens singing words really fast and loud? Sex Pistols and the Dead Kennedys? Sure. But punk isn't just power chords and scream singing. And none of it would have happened like it did without New York. First off, what even is punk? Let's start with the word itself. Since forever, the word punk has been used to describe poor quality, about people or things that didn't fit a standard. Shakespeare used it to describe prostitutes. Later, it was used in prisons in ways we won't go into here. So, of course, in the 70s, when a critic labeled music that wasn't sophisticated punk rock, a whole generation ran with it. Classic. Take what's used against you and own it. Brand it make it yours, take a word for rotten and make it ripe. But let's admit it, it's a good word. It's one letter from funk, it pops with the P, it stinks in the way you want when you want something to stick around as a movement. Punk has always, more than anything, been about extending the middle finger to the expected norms, the ratified sounds, the pretty and the polished. Punk is making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich instead of a steak dinner. It's the ability to have the screaming tantrum you had over ice cream when you were two about the ills of society when you're 20. It was never meant to be for everyone. There was never a need to try to make it palatable to the masses. It's raw, immediate, violent even sometimes. Punk music today has become so hardcore, the original punk icons seem like an elevator version. But punk in its beginning was never about one sound. Punk's origins can be credited back to bands like the Velvet Underground, which was Andy Warhol's house band, and doesn't quite scream punk today. Or the New York Dolls from the Bronx, who wore women's clothing and black leather and inspired everyone to simultaneously not give a shit and give a shit. Like so many trends that started in New York, at first most people disregarded it. Those youth. That unfortunate debasement of culture. You know, the same thing that's been happening forever. Same with the blues and jazz and rock and roll before it. The rest of America was slow to respond too, keeping it off the radio, hoping it would pass through like a 24-hour flu. But there's always someone who realizes there's money to be made, and that things once scorned soon become what we swoon over. That's what happened to the band Blondie. You know the group that sings Heart of Glass? A manager swooped them out of the Lower East Side gutter and catapulted them to the charts. But first, they were punk. Punk at its heart is a live phenomenon. It's a full sensory experience. It's the smell of sweat, the feeling of bodies next to you jumping up and down. The onslaught to your eardrums, the taste of all of it. That's another reason why it's so New York. You just had to be there, man. If you could get it on Netflix, it wouldn't be worth living in a shoebox, sharing it with vermin, paying more money than a three-bedroom house in most of the country. To be able to go to that screening, that party, that opening, that performance on any Tuesday night. As a friend of mine once said when she moved to the desert from Brooklyn, feeling strangely tired in her new life, this city takes so much, but it gives so much, too. New York City has constant input and stimulation that's food for our senses, our souls. And sometimes once you are away from it, you can even forget you need it. But then you're back, and it's like biting into a ripe peach in the summer and you go, "Oh yeah." I missed this. In terms of that live, only then and there kind of vibe, those early punk concerts are legendary. Talk about commitment. Writhing on the ground, screaming, looking like you just got electrocuted. You had to be willing to go all the way there. And that, my friends, is why you can never take the legacy of punk away from us in New York. If you're not willing to take a risk here, to put it on the line, to go for your dreams without knowing how you were going to pay your rent next month? You'll never make it here. You know those street performers in the subway that do acrobatic pole dancing while the train is careening across the bridge and almost hit your head? Yeah, that's punk rock. Guess what's also punk rock? TikTok. That decentralized power in the hands of the youth making culture like what? Don't make it perfect. Don't make it precious. And yeah, that's not New York specific, but that spirit was born here, so we're going to take some credit. A bit of history. To really understand how the punk scene exploded in New York in the 70s, you gotta go back before that. Probably all the way back to some cave pre-language banging tools and screaming in a protest about antelope jerky. Because every time someone agrees on the definitive origin of punk, there's always something further back. But let's agree to disagree and start in
0: the 1950s. You're the kitchen sink! Honey, all I did was... A... Use new Blue Ajax cleanser. Get you out of a kitchen back.
1: <laughs> While the happy housewife was being glorified on television, a whole counterculture was brewing. The beat poets that eventually made their mark in San Francisco, they started in New York City. Back when Allen Ginsberg wrote what could be a proto-punk fever dream about America in his poem Howl, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving hysterical naked, dragging themselves through the negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz. And on and on for pages and pages. It's the opposite of punk in terms of style. It's heady and endless, but it's raw and real and its honesty cuts and leaves you throbbing and swaying in a prayer of a different order. One that wants to tear down the illusions, wants to wake up the masses, wants to throw water on all of our faces. That, my friends, is punk. Next. Throw in the style of queer culture, the audacity of black militarism, the scrappy idealism of the Greenwich Village folk scene, all saying, screw the illusion of the American dream. All against the status quo that was designed for less and less of us. But you know what really did it? The hippies. You know, all you need is love, flower power, for you are mine... Screw that idealism, let's tell it like it is and crank it up to 10. Of course, they were sharing some of the same ideals. DIY culture, anti-establishment, but don't tell the punk rockers that. Make your style like you just escaped death. Black leather, motor oil in your hair, shaved and stuck straight up. Burn those flowers to soot and wear it as eyeshadow. The music journalist Robert Christgau nailed it when he said punk scornfully rejected the political idealism and Californian flower power silliness of hippie myth. While hippies were California dreaming, punk was New York real. All that back to the land of free love sounded so good. But then the economy tanked and shit got real. And for all those disillusioned youth that lived in tiny apartments and just got dumped, it was nice to have something less idealistic to scream about. So that takes us to the middle of the 70s. Ah, New York in the 1970s. White families had fled for the suburbs. The mafia had control of all of the construction. The Bronx was burning. Drugs and crime were at an all-time high. New York was like hot oil just ready for the corn to pop. Sounds like a perfect cocktail for a new creative movement. Especially one that was reveling in not fitting in, not being perfect, not being pretty, not even being talented. Everything on the radio at the time was disco or soft rock, you know, Hotel California jams you could never leave. Enter the Ramones with simple power chords and songs about sniffing glue. Take a Squatting in Soho or in some cheap tenement in the Lower East Side, you could live with just a part-time job, start a band, and get a following without an Instagram account. Punk style came right out of the streets of New York. Punk rocker Lydia Lunch captured it best when she said, New York City during the 70s was a beautiful ravaged slag. She stunk of sewage, sex, rotting fish, and day-old diapers. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do when the city around you smells like piss, is being ripped apart by violence and drugs and decay? Become it. It's the safest thing to do which makes sense that it no longer makes sense to dress like that. Most New Yorkers dress like oat milk cappuccino these days. It's the safest thing to do. But I guarantee you, New York's not done being the epicenter of creativity. COVID came and everyone pronounced this place dead. But to me, it was the most alive it's been in years. Everyone was in the parks and streets regardless of class or status. There was mutual aid. Everyone was hustling. The vibe was lit. The youth were leading a reckoning of years of injustice. I'm not saying it was like 70s New York. Nothing was. Thank God. Still, there's always something brilliant that comes out of the darker times. The Godmother of Punk. New York is the thing that seduced me, New York is the thing that formed me, New York is the thing that deformed me, New York is the thing that perverted me, New York is the thing that converted me, New York's the thing I love. These were the words of a young, waifish, androgynous poet by the name of Patti Smith. By the time Patti Smith put out her seminal album Horses in 1975, she had become the queen of punk rock and its messenger beyond New York. The first time I saw Patti Smith live, she recited Howl and I almost lost it. I was about five feet away and saw the sweat beating near her messy braids. I was intoxicated and captivated and all she was doing was reading a poem someone else wrote out of a book while her band massaged their guitars into musical noise. By that time, I don't think anyone was still calling her punk. But it doesn't mean at some point she wasn't queen of the scene. In a music scene dominated by men, Patty Smith wore the pants better than anyone around her. When she covered Van Morrison's Gloria about a pretty young thing, no one questioned her sexuality, her motive, her anything. It was so captivating, you forgot there was any reason she shouldn't be singing those words. She defied the expectations of the time, the rules of the industry. She had sex appeal, but not in the way women usually did, with their bodies used as consolation prizes or sites of desire and horror. It was about power, while critiquing power. It was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, without being consumed by it. Somehow, Patti Smith became it. Because it doesn't matter if now Patti Smith meditates and covers Dylan songs at the Nobel Laureate. Have you ever seen Patti Smith perform live? The command of the mood with the momentum of the moment. People have the power. That's what she has always believed. And when you still see her sitting at the crowded sake bar Decibel, in the East Village eating onigiri, you know she's still legit.
0: Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up.
1: The Scene. CBGBs. You can't go far in punk history without hearing about CBGBs. Just like hip-hop was coming out of the Bronx at the same time in parties deep in public housing, punk was an insider love affair, thriving in the little clubs, in the areas left to the rats and the artists. Once it left for the bigger venues, it wasn't really punk, according to the diehards. And there was nothing like punk's home, a little club on what was then New York's Skid Row. CBGB's was one of the foremost punk venues of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The Ramones, Patti Smith, Blondie, Talking Heads, Guns N' Roses, Green Day, all catapulted their careers here. And I know, I know, CBGB's sounds like catching scabies or the heebie-jeebies, which was kind of apropos, considering how dingy the place was. The bar was funky, the stage was hardly anything. The bathroom was infamous. But for many years, it was the place to be. opened in 1973 and officially called CBGB an OMFUG that alphabetical mash stood for country, bluegrass, blues and other music for uplifting gourmandizers of course it soon had no country, bluegrass or blues players and made their name by showcasing the new raw music of the time and gourmandizers? I had to look that up it means gluttons, loving to eat and drink lavishly well let me tell you I don't think CBGB's ever served food and their drinks were notoriously lousy. That's not why you came to CBGB's. So how did this hole in the wall in one of the worst areas of New York become the punk Mecca of America? On an off night in 1974, two poets turned amateur rock and rollers asked to play, slashed their clothing to look like they had just had a tussle with the wolves, eventually built the stage, and ushered in a new place to be. Those poets were Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine, and their band was called Television. Richard Hell went on to form another band and make one of the definitive anthems of the movement, Blank Generation. Crank that on your Spotify. It still holds up. And it was Richard Hell who allegedly inspired the famous fashion of the Sex Pistols with his spiked short hair and safety pin clothes that became the definitive punk style. While almost everyone at the time had longish hair, here's what Hell himself had to say about his unique do. For one thing, a guy with a haircut like that couldn't have an office job. In addition, it didn't require a barber. In fact, no barber could even conceive of it. It was something you had to do yourself. That's just it. Do it yourself. Of course, nowadays, you can spend 200 bucks to have a hairdo like that. At first, no one wanted to go to some crappy spot in the Bowery. It was dangerous and derelict. But then new acts started playing and a following began. This was before Instagram, before you could just text your friends about the newest trend. It was just word of mouth. But just like a fire, once it caught, it took down the whole house. In 1975, when Patti Smith came on the scene playing with television and eventually her own crew singing, Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine, punk had arrived. But it wasn't until the Ramones, four guys in cool black leather and a wall of noise, that the scene was official and CBGB's became destination. For 30 years, you could go to CBGB's any night of the week and know you might see history. Talking Heads made it there too. And even though they have all the scrappy origins of punk, they're not what people usually think of as punk today. Because their songs are more musical, whimsical, eclectic. Also, they didn't wear black. They looked like art kids out of design school, which they were. But they were instrumental in the popularity and potential of punk at the time. But think about it. Psycho Killer and Burning Down the House are not hippie anthems. And Blondie, Not necessarily what you consider angry screw y'all music, but you should see some of the early footage. Pure, raw energy. Then CBGB's closed in 2006. I went to CBGB's in the late 90s to see friends play their hopeful amateur music and peed in its infamous disgusting toilet. By then, it was more a t-shirt, An icon, a memory of itself more than anything. Still, when it closed, it was like closing Radio City Music Hall. How could you close something so New York? Especially when you had everyone rooting for it, trying to make it a landmark, trying to keep the doors open. So why did it close? It wasn't the health department citing unsanitary conditions, or the violence that bubbled out of hardcore shows, though it could have been. It was over rent. CBGB's paid $20,000 a month, but the landlords wanted fifty-five. So the birthplace of punk, yelling anti-establishment anthems, got eaten by outright capitalism. So where does punk go from here in New York, when CBGB's is now a high-end John Varvatos boutique store? You can still go to the original location there on Bowery, where the menswear designer store has preserved much of the old CBGB space, like a museum. They even kept the graffiti on the walls. But I guarantee you, if you use the bathroom, there will be toilet paper. And if for some reason you dropped your phone on the ground, you wouldn't need a new one. Because you have to not want to touch anything and simultaneously not care to satisfy the punk spirit. When CBGB's closed, Patti Smith played the farewell show and everyone came. But you know what she said? Screw CBGB! It's nothing. What makes it is the people and their collective energy. The people make CBGB. You can all start your own. That was always part of our philosophy. Yeah, and that is why Patti Smith is so punk. For the youth. Punk is not fine wine. It doesn't always age well. It's for the youth. Those desperate and yet energetic enough to live on the edge of everything. And for that, punk will always be alive. And because New York will always be too expensive, it will always need a talking to in the form of raw, youthful energy. Punk is also for the youth because once you are a parent, your house kind of becomes a punk rock concert all the time, and suddenly those slow jams are sounding pretty soothing. So I admit, I don't listen to much punk anymore. But when I think of this city without punk rock, I miss it. It's a creative steam valve for angst, and that's better than popping off in violence or just resigning yourself into actually not caring. By the time I got to punk in the early 90s, it was either the alternative pop-punk versions like Green Day, or more hardcore and straight-edge groups from years of losing everyone to drugs and violent hedonism. I grew up listening to the power-chord-driven intellectual rants of bad religion and anti-imperial ideas of Fugazi, both beloved icons of moral punk. True to the original CBGB spirit, Fugazi brought back the DIY, anti-establishment ethos, selling their tickets for only $5.00 and playing unusual places like the Elks Lodge, art galleries, and tiny venues even at the height of their success. I came to New York in 1998 at the tail end of the hardcore and then softcore mainstream punk revival. I moved one block away from St. Mark's Place, which is East 8th Street between First Avenue and Avenue A in the East Village in Manhattan. Once the punk epicenter, now it's a lot of Japanese restaurants and tchotchke shops. Back then, there were a number of crappy music venues and record stores and plenty of young street punks dressed in muddy green, filthy clothes and piercings with their trusty dogs, asking explicitly for money for drugs. I kind of hated those punks as I worked my butt off in college. Okay, I still do. Because they kind of give a bad name to punk. Especially when there are so many kick-ass young performers tearing up a lot more than their clothing these days. But guess what? Somehow it's still more honest having squatter punk kids tell you they have cotton mouth than urban professionals who move to New York wanting all the edgy culture, except they don't want to deal with anything dirty and want it to be as quiet as a Connecticut suburb after 10 p.m. I get it, but you just can't have some without the other. You couldn't have the music that came out of CBGB's without the whole environment it was in. Which is why every generation there's a new spot in New York that's defining culture, led by the youth and artists, usually in places that were seen as unsavory by the mainstream, like Williamsburg in the 2000s, Bushwick the last decade, and I would argue Queens today. So what now? To be in the bastion of DIY culture, you gotta head to spaces like the Flux Factory or Woodbine, both in Queens. Although they are more visual arts and anarchist ecology-driven, they are anti-establishment cheerleaders that probably won't be in your guidebooks, but are going to have some of the most interesting things happening. Or to the tugboat squatters and houseboat dwellers in Newtown Creek or parked in some marina in the far rockaways that are notorious for some of the best parties, and probably the only people in New York who have somewhere to live that aren't paying most of their earnings on rent. Check out the famous Scamunchie boat, somehow still afloat in Bushwick, before the creek is dredged and cleaned and waterfront properties take its place. Unless you think the edge is gone, you haven't been to a performance art happening in East Williamsburg where people might impale themselves with tiny forks and order takeout. As for music, it's true, it's been a pretty rough couple of years for the edgy music venues like Brooklyn Bazaar and Five Thirty Eight Johnson, about as close to the vibe of the 70s CBGBs you could find, both now shuttered. Up until just recently, you could still go to ABC No Rio, Arts and Activism Center and former squat on the Lower East Side and hear the weekly hardcore all-age matinee Right now, they're undergoing a major renovation, so let's hope they don't get too fancy for one of punk's premier showcases. So if you want to know where to see punk now in New York City, best bet is to find the record shops that young people past college, but before they own much furniture, seem to be flocking and scheming around. And ask around. Like Generation Records in the West Village. Or A1 Records in the East Village. Or Material World Records and Tapes in Bushwick. All with great selections of punk on vinyl and staff that just might know what's happening. Or scour Instagram. But it's what Patti Smith said. It's about the people. So all you gotta do is troll the new small venues to find everything on the lineup from hardcore, death-smelling punk like Dementia Alcolica to Japanese all-female rockers like Otoboke Beaver. And that's just the stuff that's posted in legit venues. Basements and warehouses with word-of-mouth addresses still claim hardcore status like little kids with gold stars. Some of it might not even be legal, but it's here. Because punk, like mycelium mushrooms, has a knack for going underground. And you might have to follow the rabbit hole down if you want to taste. If you're looking for the hip way to peruse punk couture without having to smash yourself into some basement, head over to TVI in Ridgewood, Queens, named after a famous Stooges song, and listen to everything from new wave sounds to trashy punk to lunar moon community rituals. As for the old scene, funny enough, one of the only places still standing is a place to buy stuff. Trash and vaudeville is the original place to shop and outfit yourself with the latest torn up fashion since 1975. It might seem antithetical that the one thing surviving is a shop to buy things, but it's been a mainstay on St. Mark's Place so long, it's its own legend. And with a nod to the poetic origins of punk, right across from what was once CBGB's is Bowery Poetry Club, a venue dedicated to performance poetry. Although it's only been around since 2002, it feels like it came right out of the 60s. Grab a coffee and catch some of the best poets in the city. And yeah, I know you might be thinking, I thought this was an episode on punk rock. But check out the documentary, Don't Be Nice, about five black Latinx queer slam poets who found their home and voice at the club. And you'll see where I'm going. Remember that middle finger to establishment tell it like it is anyone can do it mentality? Yeah, especially by young people otherwise marginalized. Which brings me to the next segment. Punk So White Like anything, you can never pinpoint a whole movement to one person or one place or one event. There's always something leading up to it. Even though the history of proto-punk probably owes itself to metal bands from South America, or ska, that had its roots in reggae, despite a few exceptions, punk's history is pretty white. Except, of course, it isn't. (laughs) Between the all-black band Death out of Detroit in the early 70s as one of the first punk bands ever, and Bad Brains out of D.C., often credited as the first hardcore punk band, like many things, the history is not that white, or New York-based even, for that matter. Which brings me to a funny thing about this city. For much of the 20th century, when it came to culture in the United States, while you could make it somewhere else, until you made it in New York, it often didn't stick. But for a scene claiming to be anti-fascist and anti-establishment, you'd think there would have been a few more POC fronters in this city. And there were, but it's not what's been remembered as much. That's how Afropunk started. A free festival started in New York in response to the overwhelming white representation of punk music. Now it's a huge concert with chapters all over the world. You can still head over to Commodore Berry Park in Brooklyn every year to catch it. It's still one of the most amazing yearly gatherings of style and new black music you'll find. Like Miki Blanco, a trans black rapper who credits their music influenced from the punk and riot girl scene. Now that's some new shit. Speaking of, the Latinx hardcore scene has been going strong since the 80s, and it's not going anywhere. Spanish and English often go word for word interchangeably, competing with speed and volume like its own language. Some say it was Latinx artists that brought punk to the next stage and that legacy isn't going anywhere. Check out the New York City Latina band, Ratas en Celo, and their estrogen accordion punk. Safe to say, the future of punk is definitely not just white, young, or male. And now, it's global. I admit, I kind of thought punk was past tense in this city. You know, punk is dead, right? If dead means you still get to look like you haven't seen the light in weeks, scream about revolution while bodies magically bounce and smash against each other in poetic violence, and you squeeze sound out of your instruments like you're juicing an artichoke. Except now, you look like K-pop meets Priscilla Queen of the Desert meets Alice Cooper. That's not dead, that's just the next thing. When you come to New York, you're coming to somewhere that is made by the people. Every site and destination here would be nothing without the crowd of bodies almost everywhere you go. And more than anything, it's the unpredictability of the place that makes it so exciting. Just like any good punk show, it's both the honesty of the expression and the volume of sound and bodies that cannot be explained. It has to be experienced. Most of all, you don't have to know anything beforehand to be here and experience New York. You just gotta let yourself experience it. Because if there's one tenet of punk, it was that you didn't have to already know how to play music. If you had the desire, the energy, the angst, the style, the chutzpah, you could play, and punk was about that spirit in the beginning way more than one kind of sound. Not being trained became the thing that people loved. And here's the main rub of why punk started in New York and is still here, because no matter what happens in this crazy city if you fake it till you make it with enough brashness this city responds it might eat you alive and leave you broke but it will also celebrate you and more often than not start the trend that will catapult it to the world hey ho let's go Thanks for listening to our New York City Punk episode. Now you've got an appetite for some power chords and a bounce in your step. Remember to check out the other episodes in this guide for deeper dives into the Big Apple's food, how to do it on a budget, and much more. You'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on the places in this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Los Angeles, Barcelona, Mexico City, Hawaii, Iceland, and many more, and many more to come. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.